Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. Today's podcast is with a guy who's changed my life, who's changed my understanding of exercise, who still continues to this day to be a very good friend and a close mentor. Uh, probably, in my opinion, the guy who knows most about exercise in the entire world, specifically biomechanics and anatomy, uh, ultimately. And so he doesn't, and he, he gets very adamant about this in the podcast, he doesn't talk about hypertrophy. He doesn't talk about mechanisms. He talks about biomechanics and biomechanics is the foundation of everything you do in the gym. Ultimately, it's how you move, right? So how do I move in a squat? How do I move in walking? How do I move in breathing? All of those are the study of biomechanics, how the body moves. And Tom Purvis is an exceptional wealth of information. Tom is has been doing this a very long time. Uh, he has an incredible understanding and his understanding is very much uh, accurate very much true to um, the, the purity of the human system. And Tom tends to get very strongly opinionated, as you guys will see in the podcast, uh, about people doing things outside of what he sees to be accurate. And I don't think he's wrong. I think maybe there's context that we could apply it to outside of what Tom's belie uh, beliefs are. Um, but Tom tends, tends to think there's not. And uh, Again, I think it's worth exploring. My favorite thing to do is explore my beliefs, explore what I call my own bullshit, quote unquote. I apologize for, for cussing, but it's explore my own thoughts, explore what I believe to be true. And Tom does a really good job, as you guys see in today's podcast, in challenging me, in challenging what I believe, in challenging my theories, and challenging my hypotheses. And for me, I enjoy that. I enjoy when people come in and are strongly opinionated about what they have, what they have a uh, strong knowledge in and maybe encouraging me to think differently. Does, does that mean I believe everything he says? No, but that means I'm going to leave and I'm going to think about every single thing he's saying and how it applies to both me, my clients, my business, and my life. And ultimately it allows me to think critically. So the greatest gift you're going to get from this podcast is not only to understand exercise more effectively, but hopefully to challenge your own beliefs. And for me, that's been one of the most life-changing things that's ever happened in my life. So I have the utmost respect for this man. Tom, if you're listening, I appreciate you, sir. You're an amazing, amazing gift to the world, to the exercise world, and anyone who has the opportunity to learn from you, go over and do it now. Personaltraining.com, exercise, I think it's, uh, I forget, exerciseprofessional.com and rts123.com. All of Tom's websites are uh, just truly incredible resources. So without more rambling for me, today's podcast is brought to you guys by Organifi. Organifi Gold, Green, Red, all of them should be in your cabinet. Uh, if you're going to choose one, gentlemen, I suggest you choose red. Ladies, I suggest you choose gold. And in general, everyone should be taking the green. So, guys, the reason I suggest red, you guys have heard me. Uh, if you're going to, if something's going to take you out as a man, you got to, you got to go down the list <laughs> and say, what are the things that are going to take me out in life? It's going to be cancer. It's going to be heart attack, most likely, right? Or you're getting hit by a bus. So, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm preventing those things. So, every, certainly every month do some fasting that'll reduce the likelihood of cancer. Certainly every year we do some ketogenic dieting that can reduce the risk of cancer. Now I'm not an, ex I'm not an expert in this, so don't take my advice, go ask your doctor, but this is how I approach it. And when it comes to cardiovascular health, I want to make sure that I'm getting enough uh, berries and red fruits and red vegetables and things that are improving my nitric oxide retention. So I want to think that I'm going to consume things that improve nitric oxide systems in the body. And reds from Organifi is one way that I do that on a consistent basis. I also eat a lot of beets. I also eat a lot of berries. 
Uh, I also take some citrulline, some arginine, things that improve pump. Ultimately, if it improves pump, it's improving your, your, your blood delivery to the muscles, to the penis, to whatever ultimately muscle you're trying to use in that moment. So that's a great thing for guys. Uh, I usually take this breads about once a day, sometimes pre-workout, sometimes post. On average, if we can default to one, take it post-workout, take two scoops post-workout and you're good. Um, as far as ladies, why I suggest the gold one, it tastes freaking awesome. And it's really great for chilling you out at night. So I know a lot of my female clients want some just to like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have a tea. Like what can I consume at night that tastes really great? And it's kind of like a dessert. So this is what I suggest to my ladies. Um, so instead of consuming, you know, your chocolate after dinner, or your dessert, go ahead and grab Organifi Gold and allow you simply to calm down. Uh, it's loaded with adaptogens, which allow your nervous system and your adrenals to work more effectively. Uh, and ultimately control your nervous system, control your blood sugar, allow you to sleep and calm down at the end of the day most effectively. So ladies and gents, head over to Organifi.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 20% off because Organifi is loving being part of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast and I hope you are too. We're doing Mar March as like muscle building month, which is why I was like, we got to get Tom on for sure. And specifically to training, it's not necessarily, you know, the physiology of muscle building. It's like mechanics and movement and, and all that fun stuff. So um, I'm curious what your, what the newest kind of uh, area of focus is for you. Um, well, it's, it's always mechanics. The thing I really, I, you know, I only take clients slash patients that have multiple issues if another therapist can do it i don't want them <laughs> i need somebody with lots of stuff and i was fortunate enough to have a guy uh get referred to me last a year ago this month well no he had his accident a year ago this month head-on collision on a motorcycle 50 miles an hour and he died a couple times uh the gas tank on his motorcycle looked like a watered up piece of paper because he broke it with his legs and his pelvis crushed it wow. with his legs and his pelvis so he had his face reconstructed, had a dislocated thumb, which is really interesting when you're trying to use a walker or then, you know, use dumbbells or whatever the heck. And he had a frozen shoulder by the time he was in because he was in a coma for I don't know how many months. And then they was three months in the hospital. They kicked him out too early, in my opinion. But then, um, geez, he had an open wound in his stomach from where they bolted his pelvis back together. So he had this big wound vac thing when we started working. Um, what else? Well, he, they had these giant pins sticking out of his leg to stabilize them, um, to stabilize the bone while they, well, first of all, they decided whether they're going to amputate or try to put it back on because um, the compound fracture was ridiculous and it was, is from the knee down um, on the left. And so they decided to try to fix it. So he's just full of metal everywhere. And they said, oh, you're going to need a joint replacement. And he's got nerve damage in his lower leg there. So he can't dorsiflex. Well, he couldn't dorsiflex. And um, when I first saw him, he hadn't been pretty much off his back in three months. Wow. And so it was interesting. The, the problem, you know, my, one of my favorite things, and this is why this is part of a focus of what I'm thinking about. Um, the mechanics is kind of the easy part to me now, you know, 40 years later. This, the interesting thing to me is application of progression. How do you assess somebody? If you have a canned assessment, if you do a sit and reach, you probably don't know anything. Um, if, if you're, um, you know, you got in the old uh, YMCA slash HCSM days, you do a box step test and then you never do it again. You don't see if you fixed anything. It's just crap you do. I'm thoroughly convinced most of the canned assessments were just to make trainers not feel clueless day one. They really weren't to do anything. They were just kind of emotional support. 
until we could get to counting sets and reps and then we were good. Um, but it's been really fun taking somebody and I, I lived by my rules, the continuum training rules, the idea of progression. You only do what you can, not what you can't. And you don't know what that is in the beginning. So he's laying in bed and I pick up his good leg and, and, and I'm holding it, supporting under his knee. And maybe he's bent, maybe he's bent 45 degrees and I have him straighten his leg out and squeeze his quad. And his eyes got big. And he's like, oh, my gosh, my hamstrings are so tight. And he's a, he was a, at 62, he was a 10, 15-year CrossFit guy. Um, so he's used to pushing, uh, really successful in business, financial advisor, used to pushing everything to 1,000%. And so it freaked him out that one contraction of his quad made him sore the next day, which, you know, I'm going, we don't want, to, want you to be sore. He goes, no, it's good to be sore. So we had to have all that conversation because it just sets you back. At that stage, when you can't do something the next day, whatever it is you need to do, uh, you just set yourself back. And so, and that's a theme for this bodybuilding thing to some degree too. Um, that's an interesting thing is how much is enough versus how much can be tolerated, the two opposite ends of that progression and yep. effort spectrum. But um yeah, it's been really interesting because we went from that. I first saw him in June, a couple months after, three months after his accident. And now I've got him walking um, with a, it's called a half walker. He just, just on one side, but it's got four yep. big spread yep. apart legs. Um, got his frozen shoulder going within about two weeks, which is rare, but we didn't push it. We didn't stretch it. We worked the, con we made contractions. We nurtured contractions. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff I learned and confirmed about the progression of somebody. And it's, it is so easy if we get out of our mindset of everything always balls to the wall. Now there's time for balls to the walls, right? There's big time reasons for that at some point, depending on who you are and why. And sometimes that's just emotional too, which is fine. But um, yeah, this idea of progression. And so the, the, the lessons here, most people listening and most people I talk to relative to fitness and performance, they go, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. And I see it as everything to do with everybody because understanding progression and not just blindly choosing something someone else does, not blindly choosing something because you think you're a badass, not all that stuff has repercussions. And the question simply becomes a matter of personal choice. Do you care about repercussions? Most of us at some point in our careers don't care about them. And that's fine too. Most people never would have achieved. Most people that are successful almost push too hard to the point of like, you know, I remember Welsh, the guy Welch that was a CEO of GE when GE was kicking ass and he was on his fourth marriage. And he said, I sacrificed the other three to work, you know? And so it's like, he recognizes that he didn't appear to be in therapy for it or anything with his billion dollars. But, um, you know, that's, that those are good analogies because we, you've heard the old thing, I think, where it's like, you ask, and I don't know if they did this, they asked some Olympic hopefuls, that if you could win a gold medal and take something that would help you do that, but you would die the next day, would you do it? And they're all, yes. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they really did that, but that attitude certainly is, is pervasive. And it is to some degree really important, but a little wisdom on top of that is is super valuable. You know what I mean? You do know what I mean. I know you do. Yeah, man. I definitely know what you mean. And I, so I, that, that's where my brain goes, Tom, is like, what is, where does this apply contextually to people who aren't that broken, who are ultimately trying to achieve the highest level of performance? 
So what can you take that you're learning from working with this client and apply to, you know, someone who ultimately aspires to perform at the highest level rather than, I mean, obviously we want to avoid injury. We know that, but um, let's say there aren't any restrictions or there aren't a lot of restrictions. How do we take these things you're learning about progression and apply it? Here are some things. Uh, number one, uh, I'm going to suggest that our interpretation of injury at that stage of our life is very, very poor. Because here's a great example. CrossFit made rock tape famous. Now, if your workout requires fucking duct tape when you're done or even to perform it, we've got a problem, Houston. Right? So um, that, that's an interesting thing. And I'm not, listen, I in no way am codependent. If someone wants to chop their arm off with an axe, I'm all for it. Just stay away from me. You know? So if someone wants to do that stuff, just like I did, you know, I was front squatting 400 pounds, and then you get to where your knees hurt because I wasn't as controlled as I should have been, even though I was more controlled than anybody else I could see. I wasn't what I was doing, but I should. And then you end up with what they would have called tendonitis, and I'm not so sure that's what it was, but that's what it would have been diagnosed as. And so you lay off for two months until it goes away, or you wrap it tight enough you can't feel it. And that's the, the, the funny thing about wraps. Of course, if you're a powerlifter, you wrap so tight your knees can't bend, which to me means you're not actually lifting the weight yourself. Um, but that's another issue. But the big thing is that, that wrapping stuff pretty much makes it so you can't feel it. Well, that doesn't make it the next day feel any better when you're trying to walk around or get out of a chair, even though you can squat front squat 400 pounds, getting out of a chair feels like you're a thousand. You know what I mean? So there's that right there. Right there that right there is the first sign that we don't know how to interpret injuries. We think that is the nature of the beast. And that's just what you do. I remember when steroids weren't so illegal. They weren't scheduled for or whatever they are now, like cocaine or something. And you could get them anywhere. Any doctor he's like here, whatever, in the early 80s. But people were more interested in getting DMSO for their joints or equally interested as they were trying to get steroids because it yeah, was a new bane, right? Or new bane. Huh? That was everybody in the 90s was addicted to new bane because it, it eliminated all pain. And that was that was what killed guys, man. Most guys in the 90s who were dying. Tom Prince just rest just uh, just passed like, a couple weeks back. Rest in peace. Um, and that was new bane, man. It's all new bane. So that, that's where to me, partially mechanics. How do we um Work within the tolerances and better yet, the ideal function of joints, which you talk about all the time. And that is a very elusive thing to people. <clears throat> they assume, if, well, I've done that forever and it, I'm, it, it hasn't hurt me. And I said, well, finish the sentence. It hasn't hurt you yet. Very short-sighted. And if you don't care if it does, I don't care. You're just another patient to me. I'll make money off of you now. I'll make money off of you later when you're torn up. So, in fact, I'll make more then because you're never going to get well. So, you'll see me forever. So, um, and I'm being facetious, you know, that's why you're smiling. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know that yeah, about totally. me. But, yeah, but I'm, I'm, fi I'm filled with hyperbole, so <laughs> people shouldn't take me seriously. That's why it's but, always the best podcast. <laughs> but that's a big thing is what is an injury? And does it actually end up setting you back? Does this, this improper mechanics, which includes inertia filled stuff, which includes poor deceleration. So you're actually getting a hammer at the bottom when you go to come back up, as opposed to something relatively gentle when you've already got 500 pounds on there, you don't need to exponentially increase that at the bottom by slamming. Anyway. Um, and then the other part is that's probably the biggest part, but then the other part, um, certainly the physics based acceleration, deceleration, and the, the forces that come along with that. 
But just doing too many sets and reps, and that's an interesting thing. Usually, you know, back in the old days, when they said, well, you need these seven different back exercises to hit it from all angles, it was mostly because we had really crap exercises and resistance profiles. So it really did take a lot of different profiles to challenge through different lengths and positions. And that's not necessary if we had decent equipment, which is not made on the open market. But um, so there's some things like that that can change because if you can, I should say when you can do half the volume of stuff with actually more weight at the end where you're stronger and an appropriately less weight matching your weaker your maximum strength, but it's weaker at the other end of the range. If you can do that, then you have a more optimal, holistic start to finish throughout every single rep. You have a potentially better stimulus because you're not just challenging the tough end, like in a row with a cable, the tough end is back here, you know, where you're finishing it and your arms are by your body. And there's virtually no resistance out front due to mechanics. So that exercise is very half rep oriented, no matter how big your reps are. And that's one of the fallacies of full range of motion. Yes, full range of motion, but shouldn't you be challenged through all of it? You know, and with crummy profiles, you're not. So that's a piece of the puzzle too. So if I have to do on my joints, twice as much volume sets, reps and weight to get the stimulation, when if I had more efficient profiles, performance and everything else, and I only did half as much well, that's half the mileage on your tires, half the mileage in your car and getting all the same good out of it. And I think that the challenge that I'm becoming more and more aware of is, is the reason people don't do that is one, I just think it's honestly more mentally taxing. Even sometimes it is physically taxing to have to be that mentally present in everything you do. I think it's probably one of the reasons you've become mentally successful as well as physically successful is like people that actually train that way become so much more mindful, so much more present, so much more able to be to be focused on anything, not just in that exercise. You have to transfer. pay attention. Yes. Yeah. To every, sorry that's to interrupt the, you, that, but that's the hard part. paying attention, attentive and intentive. So every fraction of the rep, why are we doing, why are we counting reps if they quote unquote don't count? <laughs> We're counting. I mean, there's sometimes, and, and it's not exactly true because everything we do stimulate something positive or negative, but I'll, I'll finally get somebody to do a decent rep and I'll go 10 reps into it. I'll go one. <laughs> now that's not true. They're tired. Some and all that stuff, but it's the first one where they actually paid attention to every fraction of it. And as you well know, a fun, fun, fun piece of this is when people start taking relatively good form, improved technique, improved inertia control, et cetera, starts and stops. And then start pushing themselves because there's no reason to go to a maximal effort. It's going to turn to crap if you're not skilled and masterful at each rep. But your brain says when things start getting tough, your brain innately says, kind of a protection mechanism maybe, oh, come on, Tom, just throw that shit. It won't be so hard. You'll feel better and you won't be hurting from, from effort, right? The muscular challenge of, oh, my God, like you said, and the brain, it takes so much brain work to fight the innate, oh, it's getting tough. Well, let me just toss it. No, wait a minute. You've still moved it, but the only reason you got to is because you aborted the challenge. So that's an interesting thing. And most, most people, as much as they think they're really badass and can push themselves hard in the gym, if you make them do one controlled set my way with a profile 
that I would build, like you've played around in my, my gym, yeah. they can't mentally handle it. And right. the pain from muscular challenge yeah. is so severe because I will not let them abort the part of the range that gets difficult. Yeah. And so, uh, man, one thing I started doing with all my clients is I make them do a single rep with every body part. We'll go through like every exercise. I'm going to do a single rep with the extent of intention. So the reason I say one rep rather than one set is one rep is, is achievable. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, that's easy. I can do one rep, but I want you to give hundred percent effort at every segmental inch of this rep. Yes. Yes. So like, you're like, how much can you make this thing work as hard as you possibly can? And then maybe I'm coming in and applying some manual resistance, but, or maybe it's just their, their kind of internal resistance, right? Like the tug of war of the biceps and the triceps. And when people do that, they're just in excruciating amounts of discomfort. Like, oh my God, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. I've done one rep with like my body weight in a squat or one rep with my bicep, you know, the, the, the resistance only of my tricep. And that starts to give them a framework of like, oh, this is, this is actually what it's supposed to feel like. Okay. Now take that. And now is how much weight could you actually do? And it's usually about a third of what they would normally do. And then they're like, oh my God, I've never been so sore in my life. And the muscles actually feel great. and The joints aren't hurting. And there's a real important thing there because this idea, we have to use as much weight as we can because that's what's going to stimulate things. Now, if we put that in perspective, we have to use, we should consider when we're firing on all cylinders and everything is working well, we should consider using as much weight as we can that's appropriately performed. Because if all of that weight is stimulating and not just, listen, here's the fun thing. You can't lift any more than you can lift. So if you are doing it relatively slow and controlled and you can only lift 50 pounds on a whatever lateral raise, curl, whatever, but you can throw it and lift 70, you didn't do the last 20 yourself. I don't care how big the weight is, you still can only do 50 if that's all you can do. And I don't see why we can't, oh, but I, I cheat and I usually turn a curl into a calf exercise and a low back exercise and all this stuff. It's like, but your biceps didn't get any more out of it because they couldn't. So it's just logic. But here's another thing that what you said really helps, in my opinion. Um, we dismiss the motor learning factor. Even in research, they go, oh, no, no. We taught them how to do the bench press. We told them to go down and up. And I'm like, you, you, this is why researchers are idiots. Because it's like, man, I could take that guy. And as soon as I add some effort to that, it's, his, his form is going to go to crap because he hasn't mastered the form yet. If someone wants to work hard, and this is, this is where people have to grow up. If someone wants to work hard, they have to be masterful at what they're doing first. There is nobody that ever got to the Olympics. There's no real sprinting coach who would ever say, all right, guys, I don't care if you stay in the lane. I don't care what your form looks like. I want you to run as fast as you can every time out there. But that's what we do in CrossFit. That's what we do in cardio. I've watched people in the parking lot at Gold's over here, and they've got housewives that are 70 pounds overweight, and they're slapping their feet on the parking lot sprinting. And the dumb bitch that's teaching them or that's talking to him goes, well, if you can't finish this, we're doing five more. What is the brilliance of you can't do this one and you're going to do five more? So how's that going to work out? And more importantly, the form there is creating, likely to create, I hate predictions, it is likely to create orthopedic issues that are going to make it so these people can't work out anymore. If it's not sustainable what you're doing, you will not get the results you want in the end. And that goes along back to the, the minor injuries, to the more severe long-term injuries. If you can't sustain what you're doing, You'll never get that trophy. You'll never get in shape, whatever. It can't right. be a, a, a 
that version of a sprint. I'm not talking about running sprint, but it can't be. I'm, I got to get ready for a reunion in two months, or I got to get ready for this contest. Too, you know, right. it's a it's a long term thing, and you have to sustain it. There, Ross Scott came on the podcast and talked about when you exceed a muscle's ability to contract, ultimately it's not able to work anymore. It shuts down and either diverts to other muscles or it becomes dependent on the passive structures, ligaments, tendons, joints, bones, and that's ultimately where these orthopedic issues come up. But the one question I do, I do. Um, get is, well, what about the metabolic benefit, right? So, you know, yes, there's definitely going to be orth orthopedic considerations, but some people are like, well, if I just keep going, I'm burning more calories. That's always the defense. But what and, end? Right. And that, that's my, my logic is, okay, well, try it in a controlled way and tell me that's not more calorically demanding, right? Do one the one rep where you're actually putting maximum effort into it with no resistance or very minimal resistance, actually put maximum conscious muscle contraction into a rep and tell me that's not more energetically demanding and people just once they experience it you know they're obviously their mind is blown and they're like okay i'm sold how do i do more it's a really weird thing when you're when you're your my when our sensations from a workout are what they are and we're conditioned to them when we're starting and then we actually kind of figure out or someone helps us or we help someone figure out how to just tax the muscles and preserve the joints as much as possible. It's a very different sensation. We didn't even know how much of what we were feeling was joints trying to tolerate it. And then when you actually start working muscle, number one, most people can't do it. The, the, some of the biggest badasses can't do it because they can't tolerate the discomfort. They don't have the mental focus, like you said. <clears throat> but if for those people that can, a workout that is entirely muscle taxing, I don't care if you get through with legs and you can't stand up. But if your knees didn't take the brunt of that due to poor form, poor technique with uh, force alignment. It's a very different sensation. It's purely fatigue. It's not this thing that you have to have your immune system recover from the tendinous stuff and all that, right? Yeah. So talk to me about Tom when, when you're when you're progressing this gentleman who had this accident or any of your clients and and you're working within what they're capable of. And, and so this is where you and I sometimes you tend to get mad at me, but. I think at my level of, of um, training or the people that I work with, the aspiration is to get better at what you do, right? And, and I know that I'll, I'll define that. So better may be uh, increasing the range of motion. Better may be getting stronger in the range that you do have and increasing the range that you do have. And so I, I, wanna, I still want to poke at you a little bit and go, okay, well, how do I increase the range? Because I know you often say, well, you can't, or you, why do you need to? But well, it, the it's aspiration a, is like, I want to be able to do these things because I want to, so my range of what? The, the short, well, I'll give an example. So it, let's say, for example, dorsiflexion. I want to be able to run. I want to be able to run uphills. If my dorsiflexion is shit, I want to You know there's to a bony free. limit to dorsiflexion, right? Yeah, I know there is. But let's say I have a disparity left to right. So let's say my right, my left due one's amazing. Is my it right due to bone spurs? Because you've been, here's one well, of the things you take a martial so, artist who's been trying to, a martial artist who's been trying to get pure abduction in their hip, like maybe their sensei can do with an entirely different, one of the 50 different hip structures that's out there. And this guy actually ends up when you smash bone against bone, it makes more bone. This guy actually it, loses range of motion. Right. But if it's, if it's not smashing, if it's done in a controlled way, and my aspiration is to make it at least whatever, as, as great as I'm able to make it right now within the realm of what I'm capable of. And, and, you know, some of the people that we're working with aren't orthopedically challenged. It's just like, Hey, this is neurological or this is muscular, or maybe there's some fibrotic tissue or something there. 
So what is the, the path to improving or maximizing my range of motion? Is there a way to do it? Or okay, is it first just of like, all, it's a lost why, What do you think you're getting out of more range of motion? The, well, I think less likelihood of injury. So if I can, if I can. There's make no the, evidence. People get hurt all the time in mid ranges. Uh, okay. Most muscle tears are at most muscle tears are at mid ranges. Really? Yep. I didn't know that. I would. So I would have. I would have definitely argued. Look, here's well, the here's the joint. Be mid range. The joint you can get the without control. The joint you can get the most range out of over time is your shoulder, and you know why? Because it's not structurally sound. It is meant to do a lot of range, and so when people think more is better, and they try to do their flies down to where their elbows are touching the ground, and their each humerus is parallel to the other behind the bench. Um, they've, they've obliterated their shoulder. Shoulders aren't meant to do that. So if you've got a healthy person, the last thing I want to do is increase range because by definition of health, they've got what their joints are supposed to do. Yeah. And so everyone has limited range of motion somewhere. Yes. No. And well, number one, compared to what? Well, compared, compared to a book? No, compared to the other side. Okay, but there's nobody that's symmetrical in terms of what's going on in their body. There's nobody that's neurologically symmetrical. Otherwise, people could all, all be ambidextrous. There's nobody. You have a right dominant eye. You have a dominant eye and a non-dominant eye. You have, there's, your joints have never experienced the same forces through your number of decades you've been alive. And they change throughout that period of time. And they don't change symmetrically. So but someone can go, I've got- I understand right your point. I understand your point. I think the point being, though, there, should there be- if I want to run, I'm doing, if I want to walk, I'm, I'm ultimately aspiring to do the same thing with my left and right side. So there should be some aspiration. Yes, but you never max range when you walk. Well, whatever the, whatever, maybe it's running, whatever, whatever the, the exercise is, hypothetically, there should be some, I, I'm, I'm questioning, I'm asking you. I don't there believe that. There should be some aspiration to, you, I mean, I think that's where injuries happen. I think my, in my experience injuries the problem is bilateral disparities then this is one of my problems with this discussion i need a person in front of me yeah, to yeah. have this conversation because we're making generalizations hoping to get an absolute answer when every joint is no. different every person is different i'm hoping to get a thought process not not an the absolute thought, process thought process is we have got to get rid of childish expectations you can have goals without having expectations. I want what to work on this. What is the child's expectation? Let's child's expectation that. is that we are we're going to guess at what we're going to get. We're going to predict what we're going to get. Instead no, we're of not. going, we're going to explore what we're going to get. There we go. Now we're talking. This you want a thought process. This is the important yeah. part for people to hear. Yeah. So we are on the same page. The problem is when we're talking about this, I'm thinking about. Listen, I've been I've fifty one thousand over fifty one thousand hours. I've spent working with people. Anybody so listening out there would have to work eight hours a day, seven days a week for over 24 years to have the same amount of experience I've had. And about seven of that was me following protocols. The rest of that 40 years has been, wow, protocols fail left and right. So what is it? What do we need to do? We need to do what it takes. What is that? We have to explore it. So that's the first thing. And I, the thing I've found with most people, if you train, explore range, via contraction, and you explore it and not get in a hurry, the body will give you what it will have available. And if you have to force it, it's not going to be available. And you might be able to get it, but there will be at a cost. Whether you care or not is not my problem. But the body will give you the things you ask for if you ask for it correctly. 
if it's ever if it's available. Okay, that's exactly what I was hoping to get to. And um, let's consider the shoulder joint. Let's consider the hip joint. Whatever you want, whatever joint you want to look at. What value is there in creating stability? Let's say the shoulder joint from 360 degrees, or however many degrees of range of motion we have, or how many, however many degrees of muscular insertions we have. So let's say for, I'll, give, I'll give you a, a more concrete example. I'm trying to generate more force output with my pec. Um, I, maybe I, I've, I've explored the entire excursion available to me right now at the pec. Is there, have you come across value in increasing the um, kind of co-contraction of supporting muscles? Either, um, either, acute, either acutely, like in the moment, or- Okay, if you're talking probably, about consciously attempting to create co-contraction versus- um, your brain's already doing that anyway. Well, what I'm talking about specifically is, is there value in training these muscles either synergistically or in some general, like how am I getting, what I'm getting to is like, how do I know what proportion to train all muscles around a joint? Yeah. Like how, how okay, do you but, make Okay. Decisions? But when you say train them, you already are, you're doing pulling stuff. You're doing you're talking about the same time trying to contract no, every. No, in general, how do you, how do you get to the, with the giant with a guy like that? Because I think it's a good kind of microcosm. Like guy like that, how do you decide which side of the joint is getting more overall load, or is it balanced? Or well, first of all, like, yeah. it's never balanced because there's no well, there's no muscles the number with this, of sets and reps balanced, right? And I I never decide sets and reps because it's not up to me. It's up to how well they're doing while they're doing their sets and reps. It's never up to me, and it changes every day. And I can change the moment arm and, and the number of sets and reps change. And I can change how hard they're thinking and the number so of sets and let's, reps. Change. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So how do you Let's decide? go back for one second. Let's go back to the idea. There's no such thing as balance, muscular balance, because from front to back, you have entirely different mechanical ability, entirely different amounts of tissue, entirely different, whether there's pinnate muscles in one side and not in the other, which is always true, right? Your biceps, your elbow flexors are, are all fusiform, your triceps are largely pinnate. These will never be the same strength. Your bicep does not have an anatomical pulley. Your tricep does. There's no way to have the same strength. Can you imagine having the same strength in your plantar, in your dorsiflexors as your plantar flexors? So you could literally lift your body weight with your toes about a thousand times. It would be ridiculous, but it's not the same mechanical ability. So we can't measure balance by strength. Well, balance doesn't have to be equal, right? It's, it's, right. it's some, some relative. But that's the problem with balance yeah. by definition is equal. Right, okay. By definition. Yep. So what we're saying is we want as optimum as it can be for what it is and what it does. And it can't be compared to the other side. So the shoulder joint, as an example, very little structural stability, primarily dependent on muscles. At some level, it has to be balanced. Does it not? No. You're thinking, well, you're, otherwise you're it's telling me. Out of alignment. So, so how it, what, what I'm afraid people are going to hear is that every direction I can move my shoulder against resistance, I should be able to lift the same weight. No. So, but no, that's no. what balance means, Ben. Okay. So explain it to me then. Balance, should, balance by definition is equal torques. Okay. It's not the same weight on each side, but it's the same torque, meaning weight times moment arm on each side. Fat kid right. and closer, skinny kid. Balance by definition is that. Okay. We, when we're talking about the body, we use terms so poorly that someone else listening who thinks of balance the way it really is will totally misinterpret. Okay. Right? So what, so what, we're, what we're saying is, it would be really great if everything all the way around was doing its job optimally. However much that is, your rear delts are never going to be lats. Right. So that's all I'm saying is we can't compare these things against each other. 
We need to compare them for, have I done the, the job I can do without beating the living crap out of it? Have I, have I addressed everything I can address? And how does it feel? And, and as soon as you start using a measurement tool, if I'm doing manual muscle testing and I'm trying to push the same amount on everything, well, then I really haven't tested its ability, have I? I've tested it for that amount of force. Everything is test specific, you know? So if I, if I test you with a, uh, in math, with addition and subtraction, and I go, oh, he's good. Well, shit, we didn't do calculus. I don't know if you're good or not. So, you know, the same thing with the muscle. It's it's not as easy as everybody wants it to be. And as soon as someone boils it down to a sound bite, they're wrong. Yeah. I think the challenge is the nuance that exists in movement is only typically visible to someone who has 20 years plus of experience yep. skilled observation. the nuance. Yeah, skilled observation. The skilled observation. And not codependent on whether it gets better or not. You do the best you can. And there's a great quote, if I can remember it, we're responsible for the effort, not the outcome. There's too many, when we say, oh, well, is it neurological and influence? Is it structural? Is it whatever? Yes, yes, and yes. Yeah. That's another, I wrote down something that just has been, been really, I try to avoid social media because it's all retarded. But um <laughs> Well, and, and what I mean by that is there are some people out there trying to educate and there's some people pretending to be educators and those are not the same thing. And one of the things that struck me was <clears throat> someone <clears throat> can throw out a bunch of words and people think they're an expert, right? The problem is they're usually throwing out absolutes, meaning this is good. This is bad. I would do this. I would do that. And I'd be like, I don't care what you do. If someone's throwing out absolutes slash sound bites, something's good, something's bad. They are not experts. Absolutely, there's no way around it because their their level of experiences are so incredibly low, they have not seen exceptions to what they're saying. And I've been doing this so long, everything I was damn sure of that made me a genius when I was 25 lecturing, I found along the way when I started paying attention, I was wrong. Somebody doing that thing, it did not work out. And it might just not have worked out now and it might be able to progress up to it. It might have been, but the, the bottom line is a true expert can take really complicated things and explain them clearly. Now, the sentence may be complex, but it's not word salad. If you can't understand what someone's saying and they can't explain, step back and explain it clearly, they're not truly experts, they're posers. There's a difference between being an expert and being a master of something. Someone that's masterful is very, very different. They have a level of wisdom. They can typically make incredibly complex things actually seem or appear relatively simple right? That's what's so deceiving about a true master is you could watch them paint or watch them do anything. And you're going, well, that looks simple. And you try it yourself. And it's like, holy crap, that's really hard. But they've gone over the arc of struggle, the learning curve, all this stuff and come out on the other end with, it's just this almost can do it blind type of skill thing. And another thing about them, again, they don't do absolutes. They have incredibly broad experiences. And this frustrates people, but they put qualifications on everything. So when someone says, and I'm sorry, but if it's balance or if it's strength or whatever, I need to know what someone's thinking because I can't answer it unless we're on the same page. And most people will never do well in my classes. Most people will hate talking to me or listening to this probably because I need specifics because every person, the reason I'm successful with so many incredibly difficult clients is because of detail. And doing what they can do, not what I want to do. 
So that's, that's just a huge thing. And it's the thing we see on social media the most is there's one way, there's one influence. Oh, that's all mechanical. Oh, that's a tendon problem. There's no way to separate. I mean, what put force on the tendon, right? I mean, ultimately, ultimately is muscle. That's the only way to get force on a tendon. So, yep. you know, anybody that says is looking for the answer is already not an expert because there's always multiple answers. That's one of the problems with yeah, so research itself. They don't, they, don't, they don't know all the variables of exercise. They can't possibly control what they don't know. And research is highly dependent upon controls. The more variables that are controlled, the less applicable to real life research is because you're never going to live in that lab where they control the variables. So yeah. when someone starts quoting research like they're brilliant and going, well, this research study found this, it's like, yeah, but you didn't read the exceptions or what it took to actually make that research work. And you'll never find that in the gym. Yeah. One of the things that you've given me, Tom, which is, I think, one of the greatest gifts any human's ever offered me is um, the ability to question my own bullshit, the ability to question everything I think I know. And uh, that transfers into everything in my life. And I truly uh, um, will be grateful for you till the day that I die um, for all of these things, man, for all these, you know, and I, I take what you teach me in exercise and I apply it to everything I do in life. And I, and I encourage all the listeners to do the same or really anyone to do the same is, you know, we all have these belief patterns that we get stuck in and we think we have shit figured out. And when you start to kind of look outside of that uh, is really when you can start to acknowledge, as you say, you don't know shit and you're just trying to figure it out along the way. And, and it allows you to think critically. So thank you. And uh, I just want to kind of bring that up because, man, I, I, I credit you more than anyone in my entire life for, having, for teaching me how to think critically. Well, there's thank you. But a couple of things pop into my mind. Number one, people that are insecure and want to appear to be an expert either to themselves or to others are not comfortable questioning because questioning actually appears to, to show weakness or lack of expertise. What you just said is incredibly important because all power comes from questioning. All mental power comes from questioning because science is nothing but questioning. I've heard people say, well, you can't question science. And I'm going, man, you got that 180 degrees backwards. Wrong, it's yeah. all questioning, yeah. you know, but they want to use it as, as a false power thing, empowerment thing for them. So that's number one. The problem with questioning for a novice is they, they, they might hear what we're talking about. And when they question, they don't know where to get the answers. So it is a giant. There's no answer that just comes. It is, as you're saying, it's an exploration process, which is why it's not about well, I got 20 years experience. Most people 20 years experience have about two months of experience. They repeated a heck of a lot of times, as opposed to someone who's questioning every day and going, number one question of your whole life will always be, what am I missing? No matter how great you are, no matter how great your listener is, they should be going, what am I missing? I, my number one, my power of working with patients and clients came from, what am I missing? But Tom, they're getting better. But what am I missing? Are you telling me this is good enough? You're satisfied with this? If there's something left on the table, I'm not satisfied, but I don't know what that is if I'm all happy about myself. So it doesn't make me insecure. It doesn't make me think I'm a loser. It just makes me go, I want to be better. And then maybe they can be better. And if nothing else, I learn from it by questioning myself. And so that's just a huge, huge, huge. And then going back to this thought process idea is such a big deal. Um, and I got to tell you, I've told this to lots of people. I have this guy that just annoyingly, every time I see him goes, I owe everything to you and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, there's two problems with that. Number one, I don't see you every year, but one time. So there's not a lot I can do for you on a regular basis. Number two, you were sitting in a class of about a hundred people when you earned this shit. And if 99 of them didn't get it and you did, I was the common factor in those that didn't get it too. So what's the, what's the thing here? It's the listener. It's the person who takes it to heart and understands. So really, as much as I appreciate someone out there acknowledging what I've worked so hard, because I've worked so hard to be a teacher. 
I don't want to just give out information like a boring college professor. I want people to understand what an, a stupid moment arm is. And that's one of the differences. When you watch some of these people that have stolen my stuff, uh, they're just, they present it boringly. They present it as matter of fact. And I've got passion in everything I talk about, the smallest little thing, because I understand how big it is for someone, if not everyone. And then the other thing that, uh, you know, uh, I always thought, man, I'll never get a tattoo because thinking long term, I can't imagine being in a nursing home at 90 and not feeling stupid for having that hula girl on my arm or whatever from the Navy. You know what I mean? And so I thought, man, I finally came up with something last year that I would get as a tattoo. Although I like what one guy said, a friend of mine from Canada, day for day, he said, you know, uh, and this is going to make people mad. He said, I appreciate this so much. I see the I see tattoos as vandalism. But um, there's a Latin word, and I'm going to butcher the saying of it. I've heard one person say it, it sounded Italian. And then there was another one that was some Latin, but it's, best, it's spelled N-E-S-C-I-O, Nasio. And it means, I don't know. And if I was ever going to get a tattoo, I'd put it right here on the palm of my hand. And if anybody said, what's the answer? I mean, I'd just be like, I don't know. Yeah. I like it, man. I like it. And, and in the same breath, you know, I have this conversation all the time is people who are beginning need, want um, guidance, right? And it's not always possible to um, teach them to think at your level or teach them to understand all the different variables that you're considering when you're thinking at your level. And so sometimes people listening are really just like, well, what can I take from this? And what should I be focused on? And uh, what are the, what are some of the takeaways that I can take from, from Tom Purvis, who you know, ultimately is, is the best, one of the best minds, if not the best mind in exercise mechanics and actually apply to my workout right now. So if you were to kind of condense this down and go, all right, when you're training, do this. Okay. Well, I can think of a couple of things. Number one, the power of intention, which is when you were talking about paying attention for every piece of the rep. See, some people go, oh, intention. It's putting, putting your mind in the muscle. It's like, you know, that mind in the muscle thing, that's a joke. Uh, that's a soundbite. Doesn't mean anything. That doesn't tell you how. Right. I got 13 different versions of intention that I'm currently teaching. And if we were going to quote unquote, put their, their, someone's mind in the muscle, that simply means it's not that easy. It's because I used to think, what am I having a brain transplant into my bicep? Am I just looking at it? What am I? Well, it's actually a lot of, of, of relatively simple things, but that's number one for, for probably most of your listeners who are interested in specifically hypertrophy and muscle is to stop. And there's going to be a caveat to this. Stop just moving weight. You are not a weight lifter. You are a body builder. So the focus needs to stop being, did the weight get from the top to bottom? The range of motion is not determined by how far the weight moves like they do in a bench press. That's true for powerlifting. That's the rule of the sport. For someone worried about optimizing muscle, they should be listening to their current joint slash muscular abilities. Working within their current abilities and not pissing it off will potentially allow the body to offer more, more in terms of strength, more in terms of contractile ability, and more potentially in terms of range of motion, as you suggested. So this idea of every, I'm going to go a notch further, every millimeter of a range that's moved needs to be entirely attention-filled, thinking about whatever your goal is, be it muscle, be it 
And you can, you can throughout a rep, throughout a set, throughout from one set to the other, slightly change what you're thinking about. Different ways of intending to control the weight, control the muscle, control the range, control your body, control your static positions that totally encourage some things to be more mechanically available. Like we talk about kind of a chest up filled rib cage idea for, for, for chest as opposed to collapsing. Well, that's not just the movement. That's the foundation. In fact, all movement is entirely based upon its foundation. So when people start going, oh, well, you're doing arm stuff instead of back, why don't you start doing the shoulder blade stuff? And people are like, oh, yeah, I feel all that stuff. But you realize the shoulder blade stuff is entirely dependent upon the thoracic spine. So if someone's thoracic spine <coughs> is super curved, they're never going to have the scapular movement that they're probably going to want. So all of these things, wow, that's a lot, boiled down to what? Paying attention and always asking, what am I missing? When you ask what you're missing and you start looking elsewhere beyond your current comfort zone is when things start to show up and you start to value and see more things. You never, you rarely see things you're not looking for. And as long as we're perfectly happy with what we're doing and we're blind to the details, we rarely ever grow and evolve. So everything you're saying to me is the answer. It's paying attention to the details and always, always questioning for the, for, the, for the purpose of betterment and evolving my brain and my body, what should I be doing here? What should I be doing with this client? What am I missing? No matter how satisfied I am or proud I am, we're missing something. That could be a big deal. Yeah. So walk me through what you are thinking about. What, what, so Because that, that's a really complex question. So when I'm doing a bench press, when I'm doing a squat, there's, there's an enormous number of things that I could be thinking of. And how do I know? I think this is, this is kind of a... a leading question, but how do I know I'm doing it right? How do I know I'm focusing on the right, the right thing? Um, well, bring me back if I get off track here, but um, I've changed, again, by, by watching people's experiences. I used to have kind of a protocol in my head of, okay, with everything, you want to work on the positioning first. They got to have perfect posture. They got to have this, they got to have that. And I started realizing that's all great, but they still don't know what exercise they're doing. So it's kind of like I have started now, and it's probably not any of your listeners, but I'm talking about beginner beginners. So if, you're, if your listeners are also trainers, they need to realize that if they're working with real people, it's, they're not training themselves. They're training real people who don't have the same muscular ability or attention-oriented ability or whatever. But I start teaching them the motion. Really light, but it's like, look, this is what this is going to look like. And then start trying to dial it in a little at a time. The word triage is important to me because it's like I used to throw this entire paragraph at people about here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this and this and this. And you're going to hold this tight. And you're going to move this down to here. And in the end, they're like, we're going to do what? So you start with one thing. You do the next most important thing. Sometimes that's based on what you just observed, but it's a matter of honing. It's a matter of chipping away at the giant rock to get down to the Venus de Milo or whatever. It's, it's that kind of stuff and progression of motor learning and then progression of load tolerance, progression of not just controlling the body, but controlling the load, which are somewhat different things. Um, the intention of controlling the body very often helps to control the load when people are just looking about the, at the load. Um, sometimes it's not so detailed. But it's all important. So um, now I knew I'd get off track. Bring me back to the two things you asked. Man, my I brain made you lose out. it. Huh? Yeah, my, well, I was thinking about, so, so I want to ask this question since we're on this path. Um, 
how important is load and motor learning? So, cause like going through the, going through the motion without resistance is so different. And I'm curious in your experience, you know, what percentage of load, there's some data on that, that I've seen, but I'm curious in your experience. You can't do percentages of load because you have to do a one rep max first and you haven't motor learned it yet. Yeah. Well, so maybe That's it's a complete percentage hypocrisy. Effort. So it's like 65 to 70% of perceived, perceived effort. You know, the numbers don't matter. The bottom line is yeah. what can you do appropriately? And every time, every time you add load or speed, there's a new motor learning process. Now it's probably abbreviated because the better you are. And another interesting thing there, I, I seem to see in some people, there's a lot of qualifiers there. When they get pretty good at one thing, they're better at motor learning something that's even unrelated because they start to break it down. They start to have a little bit of a process inside of them. Even if it's comparing a bench press to a squat, those are largely unrelated, except that when I learn to control and separate well, what's supposed to move, what's not, I get to take that new awareness over there and then apply it immediately to a different chunk of the body. So there's a bre an abbreviated process there. But to me, everything, I completely aborted numbers when I actually started getting good because it is entirely based upon what this person, someone will go, how many reps am I going to do? I said, I don't know. We'll find out. Reps are a historical record. They're not a prediction of the future. So I can change how hard you're thinking. To your point, I can change how hard you're thinking. You got 15 reps last time. You're going to get seven this time. So, so my question was, um, <laughs> what, what should what should they be thinking about, and how do they know they're doing it right? Um, during a, during a rep mm -hmm. set, whatever. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning, I don't. And by the way, everybody out there is a beginner on some level. That's an important piece of martial arts that got lost when it all came to this country. But um, they need to be paying attention to progressively evolving their form. Because form has to come like the sprinter. Form has to come before effort. Form has to come before load. There is no power lifter at Louis Simmons Westside Barbell who has shit form while bench pressing 700 pounds. It would not end well. So if you want to get to where you think you want to go, you got to do your homework. You got to lay a foundation. Everything's based upon a foundation. Yet at the same time, as they feel like, man, I'm pretty controlled here. Now take it out for a ride. And you know what I mean by that, by that phrase, listen, you're never going to know your, how good, good your form is, which by the way, can almost always improve until you take it out for a ride, try a little bit more weight, try to go to, to that one more rep, try to do a forced rep, but don't lose it. Cause that's when people lose it. I mean, you're gonna need a spotter or something, unless you're on a machine and you just slam it down or control it down either way. But you know, when you start getting to where you're struggling, that's when people blow it. That's when you know you have good form when you don't waver. I don't care if it's coming back down on me. I hopefully plan for that ahead of time, but that's good form when you do not allow your bread, your brain to abort. So there's something to look for, but that's a little bit down the road. And most people that are out there throwing around weights are maybe going to think, well, I've been doing this again. I've been doing this for 10 or 20 years. So I just need to start doing what Ben and Tom are talking about and I'll be fine. Yeah, but you have to back up. There's a kid named John Bleibernick, a kid. We were kids back in the beginning, but a guy named John Bleibernick who would, uh, when he lectured, it was just the most brilliant thing. And I asked him one time, do you remember this? He didn't remember saying it. So I'm glad I wrote it down. But he said, if you're going to progress in one area or one thing, you probably have to regress in something else. So for example, if I was going to go up and load, I very likely would shave off the weaker, more severe end of the range. If I was going to go up on a bench press, I might not try to get to the same range. But when I get controlled through the range, I can control it. I'll add that range back in there. You follow me? So, you know, it's like, it's like, um, 
anything. So if I'm going to if I'm going to go up and wait and take this thing out for a ride, I might back off of a couple other things because my point of progression has become the priority. And then I can throw those things back in there and get back to where we were, but with a new load. So that's a really masterful thing he said there that he doesn't remember. I guess I could take credit for it, but then I'd be like all those social media guys. So I'm going to give him credit. Um, yeah. So, and I, I got to tell you, I, I feel like as much as they're necessary, words are cheap because there is nothing I can say. Everything I'm saying, I have a video in my head of an experience or a hundred experiences. And I'm running through those in my head when I'm answering questions or trying to come up with a statement. And everybody out there is listening to words. They're not seeing a video in their head and they're certainly not seeing mine. That's why live, live classes are just the most important thing. Because I can actually, someone can come and go, I've, I've watched everything you've ever done. And they'll lay down on a bench and I'm like, are you sure? I don't see any evidence of it. Because words are tough to turn into to physical reality. You know, well, and, and application, right? So there's so many coaches yeah. out there who who are theoretical and zero practice. And I honestly, like, without the amount of practical experience I've put into it, I, I wouldn't have any idea of the stuff you're talking about. Because when you speak it, I hear it, I intellectualize it, but I don't understand it until I go and apply it. And I'm like, oh, I see where this applies, and I create my own kind of conclusions and like applications. And without without actually taking in where the rubber meets the road it's almost in my mind, it's almost impossible to actually truly get it. Well, it is. And, and sometimes the best answers or the best attempt at making it practical. If I say something or ask a question to a class, if they try to answer it, it's never going to end well. The one thing that I was always taught in school was you never answer a question with a question. And those teachers simply didn't want to be questioned because the most important answer is a question because you need to clarify is this what you mean? Help me see what you're saying. Because now you can start to build an image, start to build a picture, or walk into the gym a little better. If the points that are confusing to you of what I said, we go back and clarify. So coming back at me with a question when I make a statement or a question is the single most valuable thing for you to come up with an answer for you or for you to take it into live practical use. And you do that. That's one of our things we've always done is, is the back and forth of questions is part of why we're not so bad at communicating with each other like I probably am with everybody else in the world, pretty poor at it. <laughs> um, so one of the things I know isn't your area of expertise, man. I'm sure you've explored it at some level. There's clearly a chemical influence to fatigue, clearly a chemical influence to uh, performance. And when I say chemical, biochemical, meaning nutrition, inflammation, uh, hydration, electrolytes. How much have you explored that uh, influence on zero clients what why it has to, it has to number one you can't be an expert in everything and number two it's of absolutely no interest to me number three i've always hated chemistry because i can't see those fucking little electrons yeah it's just so interesting because because personally i see such a variability in people but shouldn't someone else explore that the, uh, the chemical guy is not exploring what i do and will never have the same experiences <clears throat> that's why someone else but, should be doing but, that but maybe that's the problem, right? The problem is the chemical guy isn't exploring what you do, and then you guys need to talk. So that's what I find. Is no, you, if you want to know those things, you need to talk to us. I don't need to talk to that guy. This is this is your quest to understand both. It's not mine or his. This is really truth. important. Your teachers do not need to put everything together for you. Yeah, yeah, you're they right. Don't. But I think I think in the world to understand the nuance of it, like the great the greatest opportunity for progression would be for someone at your level to talk to someone who's a biochemical 
because because as just as you said, there's so much limitation in research that I see with no consideration of biomechanics and in in biochemical biomechanical research there's no consideration of other factors and I just it's super curious to me. Well, there you go. There's a job that I care nothing about that you can do for me. Yeah, yeah, totally. But here's a really important thing. You brought up fatigue. When it comes, certainly, uh, how much sleep did you get? There's all kinds of things that in general affect fatigue. When it comes to the last rep, I'm betting it's more neurological than it is energy system. You can watch energy system kick in with these triathletes who fall down six, six, six yards from the finish line and urinate and defecate on themselves. That's pretty much your body shutting down. Your nervous system starts bringing up stuff like discomfort. It's really funny when these guys go, oh, it's lactic acid. What on earth ever made somebody think lactic acid burns inside of you? The idea that you feel it burning and that they said it's lactic acid is the most childish association ever. Your nervous system is what makes sensations occur. It's what shuts stuff down and turns stuff on. So yes, does it need the chemical platform and support to do that? Absolutely. But the thing that's fluctuating all the time in terms of what your muscles do, and assuming they have all the stuff you're talking about, is your nervous system. That's why MAT is such a big deal. That's it's really, really interesting. But you can sit and watch. Um, well, you can get someone to mentally override their nervous system. You can't override lack of chemicals and you can't override lack of energy. So when you've got a marathon runner who years ago busted through that early discomfort that they had the first time they started running and they can, I bet it's not that they don't necessarily feel those things now. It's just that they ignore them. And you know yourself that you can get to the end of a set that you might've given up on when you were 15. Now you're like, screw it. I'm going to keep, well, you might not now 10 years ago, you might've said, screw it. I'm going to keep going. You override that. And sometimes that discomfort even goes away because you've said to it, shut up. It's a really interesting thing, the influence of the nervous system on fatigue. But realize that's also a purposeful influence. Yeah, I asked Jacques the same question, actually. Um, And we spoke about why the nervous system actually stops. And it seems like the best theory of why the nervous system stops in his his, um, judgment is the lack of energy, actually. So he said... You know, we. It seems like the the most recent hypothesis is the nervous system simply loses. Its That's ability to, to say what's what's the reason? Lack of energy, interpretation of something I haven't done before. That's a really limited interpretation. Is lack of energy anything that the body perceives as going to be a problem or something it's not familiar with? It's going to throw up a signal. Anything. Yep. And that's what's so dumb about the poor progression that trainers put their in it, their novice clients through who have no physical experience with something. So things start hurting pretty early to them. That needs to be listened to because you can progress past it if you don't beat the crap out of it, right? Listen to it. Stop. It doesn't. The good workout today is not whether you got tired. The good workout the first day is did you listen to the body's attempt at progressing itself? Yeah. You know? So one thing, one thing you said earlier specific to the client laying in the bed was, um, not to induce soreness. And you, you made an allusion to that even people at a higher level should minimize soreness. So talk to me about that. Is, is that something you believe to be a universal principle or where does that, like, where does that, where does that break down? Well, like everything, I'm going to go back and go, what kind of soreness? Because I, there's at least, at least two kinds, if not four, that are easily identifiable simply through sensation and, and duration. And they are unrelated to each other. Absolutely unrelated. It is no different than a third degree sunburn versus being a little pink that's gone the next day. 
That is that, that continuum. So when you get to delayed onset, when you get to something that's super severe and usually at the musculotendinous junction, that is pretty much shown to be micro tears in the tissue. And people used to say the stupid thing, you got to tear it down to break, to build it back up. You got to break it down. That's not at all true. Yes, they find micro tears, but there's no evidence that that makes somebody grow any, somebody grow any faster than someone who doesn't get them. In fact, tears in tissue create scar tissue. Scar tissue is not contractile. Scar tissue gets in the way of contraction. That makes no sense. And I was talking to one guy the other day, and I don't know where he got this. So I, 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 I don't want to blame it on him. I won't even say his name until he, um, until I learn more about what he was saying. But he alluded to the idea that when that delayed onset muscle fi- soreness finally goes away, which might be 10 days or 14, it's not, it's not gone. The tears are not gone. They're just not as severe. It's like the cut in your skin now has a scab over it, but that doesn't mean you can go start stabbing it again. So, you know, we, we really don't, <clears throat> it, that's a mess. Now you can have very different thing where, you know, when you're talking about kind of the version of attention where you're kind of squeezing the muscle, trying to fill it up and all that kind of stuff. If someone gets sore from that, well, first of all, that, that sensation of squeezing and filling up and tightening and all that kind of stuff, expanding in three dimensions you're, when you're contracting during a curl or whatever, that's a great measurement tool for uh, when should I stop a set? Because you can go till you feel numb. You can't feel that anymore. The severity, the, the intensity of the contraction, the squeezing. That's when I noticed if you stop right there or shortly after that, you don't get sore. The further you go into that squeezing, even, even up to that, even if you stop the that version of intensity, so to speak, I hate that word, but that version of intensity produces a more subtle, diffuse version of soreness that feels like it's throughout every single part of the muscle, top, bottom, end to end, side to side. And that's really interesting. And it's usually gone in 24 hours. That is not remotely the same thing, location-wise, severity-wise, or anything else, not produced by the same thing. Usually, they find that the musculotendinous junction version of soreness that lasts a while, not only being micro tears, is very, very, very often associated with poor deceleration. So during the eccentric, you're getting that hammer effect. And realize, you consider the tendon to be the bottom of a funnel. This muscle is big and producing all this force, and every bit of force it produces come down, is funneled right down to that tendon. So if one, people are like, why do I get sore there? Why do I feel it there? Because everything that muscle doing comes down to one point. So it is mechanically most likely to get beat up. And are there other potential reasons for that sensation? Yes. Golgi tendon organ? I don't know. You can start going through all that stuff. I would not dismiss anything as being an influence, but force-wise, you took a thousand pounds of force and put it on something the size of my little finger. So that's an interesting thing. And the, the more sledgehammer-like effect there is from doing poor stops at the end of the deceleration um it's how they break concrete man with a sledgehammer they don't just set it down there so there's some interesting things about soreness i don't when someone says is soreness good or bad which is a very common question i'm like okay if that's all you know about soreness if your extent of having felt sore is one thing then we got nothing to talk about because there's many different sensations very and you can reproduce them with very different ways of working out and that's important because some of them might be very, very good. Some of them might be very reinforcing of some nervous system stuff. So I can't answer that question unless we get detailed. And again, give me a person for a month and we'll play around with different ones and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Accumulated volume is another thing that comes up for me, right? It's like you know, doing one set versus doing 10 
uh, and then knowing when to stop, knowing like what, when the threshold has been achieved or, or whatever goal that you're trying to achieve has been, has been kind of hit. That's a really, really challenging um, area of exploration. And I'm curious what your thought process is there. I got a really subjective version of it. And it goes back to that sensation of contraction idea. I've never met anybody who could do 10 sets of bicep of the same exercise and feel the same intensity of contraction on the 10th set as the first set. So when we start to lose that, the nervous system saying something to us, and I'm not, I can't, I don't know what I'm going to plead ignorance, but I do see what potentially is a correlation. I don't want to say causation, but a potential correlation and volume definitely has a point of diminishing returns. Diminishing returns simply means we're not getting as much out of it. We might even go so far as you're digging a hole deep enough that you can't recover in a right amount of time to come back and re-stimulate. So you're not, you can't put as much dirt in before you need to start. You see what I'm talking about? So that volume thing is one of the things I, I am more comfortable with people doing quality form, going to maximum balls to the wall, kill yourself, fall down effort. I'm more comfortable with a reasonable amount of mat that than a whole bunch of volume. That is one of the main things with overuse injuries, tendinous injuries, that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah. So it's obviously two ends of the spectrum, right? So during my career, you know, being someone who I would classify as relatively endomorphic, being more on the endomorphic end of the spectrum, volume is where I succeeded. Like if I, if I accumulated more volume, my body loved to, to grow and respond and loved it. And I recovered fast. And I definitely work with some athletes who were way better on your end of the spectrum, the end ectomorphic mesomorphic type guys who like one set way further down uh, seems to be kind of that sweet spot. If they do more, it tends to break down. So I think there's a, there's gotta be a lot of nuance in there. That's so interesting because most of Back in the end of the 80s, when I got the opportunity to work out with some of the guys, like we've talked about Mike Christian before and some of those guys, dude, none of them worked out that hard. I mean, your, 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 your uh, Haney's and your, uh, but even Haney, his thing, biggest quote I got from him was stimulate, don't annihilate, right? And your Gaspari's worked out hard, but man, a lot, awful lot of those guys, they'd go in and as and soon as they started feeling a pump, and they just quit. I never saw Mike Christian sweat, I don't think. And his arms were, you know, as big as anybody's back then. But so is that good or bad? To your point, I, I don't know how we'd measure that in general across the board as an absolute. What works for you? And another thing that's interesting, what works at different points in your career and based on nutrition and based on sleep and based on steroids? Because I'm sorry, when I would do the thing back in the 80s, it was the last time I ever took and it was like DECA, a CC a DECA a week, which would be considered now like zero. Well, it was considered zero then. But when you're already producing testosterone at 20, 22, 23, how much do you need? You know? So, um, you know, when I was off, we'd do the eight to 12 weeks on, eight to 12 weeks off, the way the doctor said. And, you know, by the time you're off for about that period of time, you're, you're, you're feeling it. And I'd still be trying to do the same volume, weight, and everything on workouts, and I'm just dragging ass all day long. You get to the gym, you suffer through it, and then about a week into starting up on the next cycle, shit, all that stuff's easy. So the, the, the influences here are, are numerous, you know? Is that okay? I talk about steroids. <laughs> it was 40 years ago. Who cares? <laughs> 
And of course, I, it's a topic that I think should always be on the table because, you know, I think there's value in, in those things for some people, especially, you know, men as we age, there's value in hormone replacement. There's value in, in high level. I mean, it's, it's being used anyways at a high level. It so is. I never saw any reason to, yeah. to, to deny it. And, uh, and the thing is, it's, it's, I don't care what someone else does. It's their body, man. It has nothing to do with yeah. me, you know? So Mr. Purvis, uh, I'm respectful of your time and uh, I'm incredibly grateful for your wisdom, man. Where should people who are interested in learning more from you go to find out all about RTS and exercise professional and all these amazing things you're up to? So RTS123.com <clears throat> is... And that, that's, yeah, that's the in-person? That's the live classes. It's entirely practical. If they come, if they're willing to travel and come straight to me, <clears throat> to the mastery level, which anybody can do. You don't have to jump through the hoops. We have a foundations level, which is pretty much just for people who don't want to travel. It's a much shorter thing. It's a good introductory thing. But I've had many, many people that are prepared to work hard, that are detail-oriented people, that are good at questioning. They come straight to mastery and they do fine. Now, having said that, there are a lot of lecture-oriented classroom-type prerequisites. And those used to be live. You came to those. But uh, now they're all online on a video platform called exerciseprofessional.com. That is kind of a tipping, dipping your toe in with the, I, I set them up <clears throat> kind of like college courses, the 1000s, 2000s, 3000s, and it's the order someone might want to take them, although you can buy a la carte, you can jump straight to the end if you're so inclined for a specific subject. <clears throat> but um, the purpose for that is a lot of people go, oh, RTS just teaches that textbook science stuff. I reference textbooks in there. I reference everything I can because I don't think references make you weak. I think they make you more powerful because that shows that you have lots of support and background. And it, anybody that pretends they came up with something or goes, oh, no, I got my stuff from a lot of sources. What they're saying is they don't want to reference. They're lying pieces of shit. <clears throat> so, um, but that stuff is mostly so we can communicate. You want to come to me. The thing that makes it mastery is we need to hit the ground running talking about everything on those videos as a rationale as an understanding for what we're doing in the gym. Otherwise, it just becomes some silly course where we're teaching people how to lift weights, which is not what it is. It's about understanding how to make decisions and what goes into each exercise that we might use to manipulate this thing for an individual, because um, it's not about us, it's about them. And so <clears throat> that's what that is for. It's an ability to communicate at a relatively high level so that we can hit the ground running and, and just get after it when you come see me. Yeah. And for anyone listening uh, who maybe questions whether or not it's valuable, it's certainly the most valuable personal training course that I've ever taken and that I've ever come across. Um, so giving you the highest um, kind of uh, accolade, man, it's, it's you know, you're, you're, the, you're, you're the guy when it comes to exercise. And I think the audience needs to know that. So thanks, Tom. I appreciate you being here, man. Then I've always appreciated how much you've respected and yes, applied, but respected what I do and, and probably more, more so how hard I work at it to evolve myself as a teacher. And, and I still do it. I train the toughest guys I can find um, at any level of their continuum of participation. But uh, anyway, I'm sorry I get excited and I cut you off today on some stuff, but you're always tolerant of that. No, and and uh, you keep asking well, me back. So you're asking for it, basically. <laughs> dude, I, that's why I love it, right? If I'm not getting challenged, I'm not getting better. So, and there's, as you know, man, there's few people who challenge me. And, and that's one of the reasons I, that I respect you so much. I do appreciate that every time we do have a conversation. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. If you're not already subscribed, what are you waiting for? 
head over to wherever you listen to a podcast and that may be Spotify where I listen to podcasts or Apple podcasts or even Amazon and all the other amazing platforms where podcasts listen to. By the way, our podcast is continuing to grow. And every month we have a significant bump in listeners, in downloads, in reviews, and subscriptions. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to my community and all the people ultimately who we invite on here who ultimately were doing this to continue to provide you with the greatest information on the planet. Have a great day and live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. BPAC out. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Mikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.